Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk. Where does it go? Welcome to the Where Does It Go podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. And this is a podcast about stuff. And I don't remember who went first last time. Would you like to go first, Sarah, or would you like me to? Why the heck not? All right. So I'm going to talk about where old school buses go. (gasps) Yeah, I got interested in this topic because I was listening to another podcast on my recent trip to Atlanta, and the guy said that he used to live in Guatemala, and he noticed a lot of retired school buses seem to make their way down there and become what he had termed chicken buses. Um, and he, he was saying that he thinks that a lot of the, the old school buses from the States end up in Guatemala. And I was curious about that. And I thought, well, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if that's really what is happening to all these old school buses or if it just happens to be coincidence. Mm-hmm. So I kind of delved into school buses, a little bit of their history, and I'm going to like truncate it quite a bit because it turns out school buses have a very long and very, and it, I wouldn't say, it's probably interesting for people that are interested in it, um, but it can go really into depth into like how they're built and how and what they look like and, and everything, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shorten that a, a bit. So modern school busing, um, as it is today, had its roots in horse-drawn carriages. So, um, yeah, so kids that lived too far from the one-room schoolhouses that they went to because they were super, they were super far, um, they would actually get picked up by horse-drawn carriages Mm -hmm. um, called hacks, and the carriages... um, had like little benches in the back and they would just pick the kids up and take them to school. Um, but as the population sizes grew bigger um, and they had to consolidate larger schools, um, school districts began actually buying and running their own fleets of wagons and trucks. Mm-hmm. And generally they weren't buses yet. They were just like trucks. They were trucks with maybe with an open back. So and the kids they- would just like jumble in like, Yeah, and there'd be benches in the back. Like tomatoes? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, some were fancier than others, depending on how rich the the school districts were. Mm -hmm. As we got into post-World War II, like the 1940s, um, the modern school bus kind of got, became what it is today. It it started then. Um, They started updating the safety standards, um, the visibility And the sturdiness of the buses because, you know, they're putting kids on it. So that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) The yellow color was adopted in in about the 40s. um, And that was for visibility. Um, They used to be all manner of colors. Um, A lot of them were were orange before this. But they decided to adopt that school bus yellow, the crayon school bus yellow, I guess. (laughs) And then in the 70s, um, they saw a lot of safety standards come about. Um, and that's when the, the lights and the stop arm, you know, the stop arm that swings out. Mm-hmm. Um, so kids can board and leave the bus without basically getting hit by a car. And I guess more laws came about where you have to stop for a school bus, um, depending on the lineage of the roads. And then in the 80s and 90s, it was more about fuel economy um, 
and other ad- advances like um, the exits on the bus and stuff. Mm-hmm. So most buses run on diesel. Um, I've seen a couple mention that they were running on propane, but it seems like most buses run on diesel. Um, so the addition of biodiesel conversion to biodiesel has been common places, I guess. Um, which I found interesting. It doesn't seem to be that common. It seems to be more like people who buy the buses themselves, they convert it to biodiesel. Oh, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So the average school buses only run about um, an average of 10 to 12 years. Even though they're ridiculously sturdy and like made to run forever, basically. Uh-huh. They're retired because... Um, Maybe the safety standards changed, um, the emission standards changed, which is, I guess, common in California. Uh-huh. Mechanical reasons might be a problem. Um, they, the school district might have a mileage cap on them. So they say they can only run until a certain mileage and then they have to be retired. Uh-huh. And really, this is just for safety. Right. <clears throat> it's just sometimes more practical to get new than to guarantee old. Absolutely. So when they're retired, depending on what condition they are, um, they're either scrapped for parts or um, go to government auctions and sold to a bunch of different people. And this is where the chicken buses come in. So apparently it is extremely common for um, people, for buyers from Central and South America to, to come up into the States and go to these auctions and buy old school buses because the buses themselves, whereas they used to cost, you know, anywhere from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to produce mm-hmm. because they're super sturdy. They're steel constructed. They have like really reliable engines. Um, so they will come up and buy these buses for either themselves to run a little busing thing out in the, in their countries in the rural areas of their countries or for their own fleet, like if they're a company. Huh. Yeah. So apparently that is common. I was like, oh, okay, cool. But chicken buses themselves are cool. And I didn't understand what chicken bus meant. Um, I guess chicken bus is like a slang term for like the driving conditions on the roads in the rural areas they are. There's like, it's, it, it sounds like there's a no man's land or like a, um, Mad Max or Wild West kind of mentality to some of these roads where if they're narrow and rutted, the largest vehicle always wins. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why it's chicken. They're playing chicken with the bus. Oh. <laughs> I just envisioned a bus full of chickens, which sounds gross. That's, that's significantly more dangerous, but a lot less disgusting. Yeah. And I was like, is this a thing that I should say? Like, is this actually a, like, this is not like a term that I will offend people with, is it? Like, but everywhere they were referred to as chicken buses, like everywhere I look. So I feel safe saying that, like, um, and they're kind of cool. The buses, um, a lot of the owners have a ton of pride in these buses. Mm -hmm. So they're beautifully decorated. They're beautifully painted. They'll add all kinds of different stuff, like, like, they'll look kind of like a Mad Max reality kind of 
um, buses sometimes where they'll put like big steel um, front ends on them. Is it kind of like the trucks in Japan? Uh, yeah. And oh, I guess cool. it's also like the, the um, buses in India. I guess this is common in India too. Ooh. Yeah, they're just beautiful and can be really highly decorated. Um, so it's definitely worth the look to look at them. I saw some cool ones when I did image searches. Um, they're just really pretty and people are very creative with it. And who wouldn't want to ride a bus going 100 miles an hour down a Guatemalan road um, decorated like a bejeweled a bejeweled boat? <laughs> oh, man. I'm into it. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Another really cool trend um, is people in the States are buying these buses and retrofitting them to live in them because they're ridiculously sturdy. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of room on them. Um, their engines are diesel and they're, they're really easy to modify and maintain, I guess. And so they're a big deal. There's like a subgroup of people in the tiny house movement that takes these old buses. And if you're interested and you want to look, um, I follow the hashtag schoolie, S-K-O-O-L-I-E on Instagram. And that is, that is just people that take old school buses, retrofit them to live in them, and they can be really beautiful. Um, and, you know, again, it was these buses were hundreds of thousands of dollars to make new, but now you can get them as little as 5000 to $15,000. And then if you do the work yourself, I mean, that's, you know, that's pretty cool. Their solid, yeah, their solid construction makes it so that they're kind of ideal for this. Yeah, exactly. My mother-in-law would love that. I mm-hmm. I might have to tell her about it simply because she gets all kinds of ideas about stuff and that one sounds actually workable for her uh-huh so it would be good to encourage a workable pie in the sky idea of a <laughs> tiny house so if you um if you're looking for a school bus you can find that government auctions generally if they are unwanted for school districts they generally other school districts don't want them so they're they're sold to churches to um private buyers in um south america central america private buyers um in uh, you know the states and then you know some other place that you know might want a school bus um for whatever reason the ymca or whatever um yeah so you can find them on the auctions or you can find them on ebay i noticed Really? Yeah, you. I I looked on eBay and I was like, oh, whoa, okay. <laughs> People are selling old school buses. Sarah, I want an old school bus. I know, I do too. I've always actually wanted an old school bus, but I've wanted to run like my own tour company where I would drive the bus and my husband would talk. Like he would have the microphone and be telling people about the stuff because he's extremely good at that. Mm-hmm. And we would just take people around. <laughs> Sarah, I like this idea. I know. We need like tours, tours of the area. I have $5,000. Let's I, buy a school bus. do it. <laughs> and we can decorate it. We can have Anna decorate the bottom where she can reach. Oh, hell yeah. She'd have a great time with that. Yeah. And we'll decorate the rest. 
And so I found interesting because when I was a, when I was a kid, there were no seatbelts. Mm-hmm. There are no seatbelts in buses, and there still aren't. I guess um, it's just not passenger restraint is not something they worry about. But if you notice in the seats in a school bus, like they have actually like a bar in them, like a steel frame, and then it's like padded around it. Mm-hmm. So they're actually very sturdy. They're made to protect the people in them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a ton of of people out there that have their the pictures of their retrofits of their buses, and they're just fascinating the stuff people do with them. Um, I recently met a guy um, who was living in his bus, and he had just run. Um, he had just run solar on the side of it. So he had solar cells for, you know, the days when he's running off solar. And then he had all this room on the bottom in the bus for, you know, different batteries. And he was, he had a like little bathroom in it. And it's just amazing the things people do. So it's definitely worth a look. Oh man. Yeah. It's so much fun. That's so So, exciting. Hashtag Schoolie, S-K-O-O-L-I-E on Instagram. Um, you can find them. Mm-hmm. It's a whole subgenre of ha- tiny house people. Oh, my God. That's so cool. <laughs> I have never been into the tiny house thing. Yeah. Ever. Uh, it's just not my jam. Uh, that sounds amazing. So the cool thing is that you can do this for, you can retrofit a bus if you do it right for significantly less than a buying an RV. Yeah. And that's, I'm thinking I've wanted to get an RV for a while mm-hmm. and this would be a lot simpler. Yes. Well, I don't know if it would be simpler. It'd be a lot less expensive. Yeah. And it's fun too. Like I'm sure, I'm sure your husband would uh, be, you know on board hacking the bus oh god yes <laughs> uh when i lived in west virginia um i had to drive a lot for my job just sort of all over the eastern part of the state and there were just a ton of people with school buses on their property mm-hmm. and my coworker and i could never really figure out why everybody had school buses uh, but it makes, I didn't think of them as inexpensive when they're no longer or comparatively inexpensive right? when they are no longer in use. And, uh, you know, West Virginia relies pretty heavily on buses. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a pretty important component of getting kids to school there. Uh, and so thank you, because you have made a mystery in my life make a lot more sense now. I've even seen like if they the buses are themselves like had to be too scrapped because they're there's just too much mechanically wrong for them. I've seen people using them for, you know, they've retrofitted them into um like chicken like uh what what am I thinking of? Chicken hen houses, um coops for their birds, mm-hmm. um or you know just little buildings on their property that look cool for their animals. Um, I've even seen that too, because the shells are, the shells are riveted steel. (laughs) Yeah. And I imagine with, you know, a little elbow grease and an acetylene torch, if you wanted those seats out, you could get them out. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently they're, they're easy to retrofit. Like you 
I guess. It seems like it's ridiculously easy as opposed to, you know, building a tiny house on a trailer and then having to weld the steel um, so that the trailer is sturdy enough or making a trailer for a tiny house. Uh These buses already are on this great sturdy base already. This is so cool. I'm so glad you did this topic. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. Like the the whole drive um, to Atlanta after we had listened to this, I thought about this and I'm like, I definitely need to look more into this and think about it. So thank you, Ridiculous History, um, uh-huh. for the the mind, the mindscape into um, where do school buses go? Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what are you doing for Where Does It Go, episode eight? Uh, Lost Films. Ooh. So this is a surprisingly deadly topic. Oh. Uh, did not expect this to be as sort of violent a uh, topic as it is. So it's a very real, well, no, it's not a very real left turn. It is a very metaphoric left turn from your topic. Because your topic is like optimistic and cool, and mine is, it's kind of rough. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so okay. lost films. What's a lost film? It's a film that is known to have been made, but no longer exists except in promotional stills or perhaps posters. Or there's a partially lost film where the soundtrack, a com- some of the film, but not all of it, uh, is still around. But either some of the soundtrack or the entire soundtrack is gone. Some of the film or the entire film is gone and there's just a soundtrack. Because there was a time where soundtracks were made separately from the film. Like they were different components. Uh, And the question is, how common is it for a film to have been lost? Uh, 90% of the silent era films are considered lost. And then... Almost 50% of the talkies that were made prior to 1950, 1951 are thought to be lost. Really? Yeah. And so then the question becomes, how do you lose a film? Because you would think that would be something that you would keep track of. Uh, And to discuss the major reasons for film loss, I first have to introduce the topic of nitrocellulose. Oh, (laughs) okay. Nitrocellulose, also known as cellulose nitrate, flash paper, flash cotton, gun cotton, and flash string, is a highly flammable compound formed by nitrating cellulose through exposure to nitric acid. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is also, it is used in munitions because uh, it is quite flammable and quite explosive, but it is also used in film. Uh, it was first patented in 1887, uh, and it is the major uh, material films, especially major motion pictures, were made on until 1951. Uh, and so this extremely flammable substance uh, that has then been mixed with camphor, uh, which is, I think it's a resin, um, but used it's, as a... It's mixed with camphor too? 
yeah, to plasticize the film. Mm. <laughs> uh, so that is what movies were made on. Uh, now, unfortunately, this is capable of spontaneous combustion, uh, especially if the film is not properly stored. It has to be sort of climate controlled, which was not something that was easy to do for, you know, between the years of 1887 and 1951. And also, uh, it has to be moisture controlled, uh, stored specific ways. Um, and it has to be stored specific ways, both by the film studios that have the original films, and then by the cinemas that are showing the films. So that's two realms of storage and then the transportation between the two or between the distributor and cinemas uh all those are places where improperly stored uh, nitrate film uh could degrade uh and there are two ways it degrades it either melts into like this horrific goo which then you can't show the film because it's just goop in a can. <laughs> I mean, it might be interesting. <laughs> I mean, you can show it to people individually, like have them pass it around and be like, here it is. Here's a, uh, here's Mary Pickford's latest. <laughs> <laughs> or it turns into a very brittle powdery substance and releases a lot of fumes, which can then spontaneously combust. There have been some major, vault fires uh in major film studios and then there have been some major cinema fires where lots of people have died uh like hundreds of people uh so I'll, i'll go through some major film vault fires just so we because there's you know there were probably plenty of small fires in cinemas and then there were some major uh fires Oh, I've said it can spontaneously combust. It's also just flammable if something else in the building is on fire. And everyone used to smoke everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so babies were smoking. <laughs> School children were. Your mom was smoking. <laughs> everyone was smoking everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so there was a. 1937 fire for Fox Studios in a film storage facility in New Jersey. Uh, It was spontaneous combustion, and every single Fox film prior to 1932 was destroyed. Oh my gosh. In 1965, there was an MGM vault fire that was caused by an electrical short and then an explosion of the nitrate film. But they only lost about 32% of their silent era films, which is not as big a loss as 100%. Right. Universal Studios has been plagued by fire. Uh, 1913, 1917, 1919, I mean, after two, you would think that they would be like, wow, you know, maybe we're doing something wrong. Yeah, or just cursed. Right. Uh, I'm not trying to imply that Universal Studios is cursed. Please don't uh, take legal action against this, against this poor little podcast. <laughs> so there are several 
oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, other ways that uh, films are lost are intentional disposal. So early demonstrations of particular technologies like different types of soundtracks uh, or early silent or really any silent film, especially the nitrate film, silent films, uh, educational films, films that had been, you know, somebody lost the soundtrack disc at some point. So it was just the, the real or films that were intended for single showings, which sometimes happens. All those were, not all of them, but a lot of times they were intentionally destroyed by a studio because it was felt that there was no real reason to keep them. Uh, archival work is not always prioritized. It depends on the industry. It depends on the times. You know, once talkies started, uh, a talkie is a film with uh, speaking and sound, just for people who aren't huge nerds like me. Uh <laughs> Is it a talkie? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I mean, talkies are still made today. Uh, <laughs> you know, once that came about, it was thought, oh, the silent era is over. Oh, let's just, who cares? We don't need to keep all these little extras lying around. And especially because the film was so flammable, it had to have been expensive to try to keep it even just in one place and renting a building. And so depending on, uh, depending on who's in charge of what and what they value and prioritize archiving uh, may not be implied to have value. Uh, destruction by enemies in war. Uh, there have been a few instances, uh, a lot of them in Asia, but some in other places of copies of films or the only copy of a film being destroyed by enemy combatants in war. Uh, box office bombs and studios going out of business, a lot of times, whatever, if something didn't do well, why keep it? Uh, which we now know, if something doesn't do well in the box office, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad film or it doesn't have social value. It may just be wrong for the time or it may be appreciated later on. Uh, and then there's also that the maker of the film just hated it. And so was able to get a hold of all copies and destroy them. Oh, no. That has happened a couple times. And I can kind of understand that. I am like that. That is my tendency is to, if something has gone wrong, if I don't like something, scrap it. It's done. It's over. Yeah, I'm a bit like that, too. Which isn't, when making, you know, public art like a film... I can see both sides of like, I don't want this associated with my name. I, it, it needs, it needs to get gone or, you know, people might appreciate it later on. It's, it's a tough, I think artists, this is a personal philosophy, but I think artists should have control of their work. They don't owe anyone in the world, the exhibition of their work. Right. They, like, I mean, they might owe like financial backers that, but they don't, there's no like moral obligation to share your art with other people if you don't want to or yourself yep but that's an aside <laughs> yeah it is uh there's also simply deterioration and i talked a bit about nitrocellulose and how it can deteriorate either into goo or uh the powder essentially uh there's also unstable new technology so early color films and early talkies 
you know, the technology was new. They're trying all sorts of different things and the color may not have, you know, held, it may not have been fast. Uh, the early soundtracks may have degraded depending on what they were recorded on. Uh, so that's, a, that's an option of deterioration other than poor storage or uh, poor handling. And, oh, and I've said a lot about nitrate film. It's no longer utilized uh, typically in film. There's, it's typically an acetate film or digital production that's utilized. Right. Uh, and then there's the question of like archival institutions that exist. Uh, and what about them? Like, what about the Library of Congress? Uh, typically, if you wanted to copyright a film, and I think this is still the case, uh, I'm not a lawyer, films had to be submitted to the Library of Congress as part of the copyright process. But for a very long time, the Library of Congress did not have to keep them. So it, you had to, you know, it would be determined by, I guess, whatever librarian was there, whether or not it was worth keeping that copy. And they could be returned to the makers. So that is part of why archiving of films is spotty. Uh, and it depends, it truly depends on the priorities and capabilities of whoever is holding the can of film. Of the 11,000 silent era films made, there's roughly 11,000 in the U.S. that are known, uh, components of 3,800 exist. So that's like a 70% loss. And wow. then the ones that have components are not all complete. Uh, some filmmakers and some actors have had their entire career essentially obliterated through intentional disposal, unintentional, poor handling, fire, etc. Which is a shame. Yeah. It is a shame. Um, when I was in high school, I worked at a movie theater. So this is back in the 90s. Um, and the films, even though they weren't um, the nitrate films, they actually came on a truck like you, like uh, one of those um, trucks that deliver people's paychecks. Oh. Yeah. So it would come with like the paychecks and stuff. Um, and it would like actually be delivered in canisters to the movie theater and then um, the manager and the, the guy basically that cut the films would actually take it upstairs and they would have to like actually physically cut it. And there was a chance that you could actually damage the film doing that. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. So I don't know how common it is, but it was, it was very easy to mess up the film even then, like just screw it up. So yeah, digital is really probably a good thing in this day and age that you have less um, chance of destroying film, mm -hmm. um, even though they're not made from spontaneously combustible <laughs> ingredients. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to, to end on a little, a little bit of an up note uh, in terms of film recovery, uh, Films that had been thought to be lost have been found in all kinds of sort of oddball places, uh, private collections, garage sales, just studio film labs, uh, 
Like one example, uh, there are a lot of foreign collections that include films previously thought to be lost. Uh, Metropolis is a very timely uh, example in that an almost complete version was found in Argentina really? in, a, in a cinema museum in 2008. That's so cool. And there was very little missing and a lot of that could have been, was able to be reconstructed through still shots. So lost films aren't necessarily always lost, uh, but a lot of them are just gone, uh, which is a shame. So it makes me wonder, like, if there, I'm sure there are people out there with films that used to be, you know, sent around a theater and they just have them in their, you know, probably not their attic. They would have combusted at that point, but like maybe in their basement or something. I'm sure they're out there. Yeah. Ask your, uh, ask your parents and grandparents, you know, with all their stuff in their house, if they've got <laughs> any, any films buried anywhere. Uh, yeah. Cause there's real value in, there's real cultural value. And even mm-hmm. if the film is not enjoyable or it's got seriously problematic themes, because uh, plenty of them do, or plenty of them are just, I don't know, dull or silly or not enjoyable. Uh, it still has value archivally of understanding the time in which it was made and perhaps even understanding how we can do better now. Right. If Even if the, you know, the, the film is abhorrent, uh, it's a great example of how not to be. Definitely. So yeah, that's where lost films go. That's really cool. Yeah. I I um I had always heard about those fires, but I just assumed it was arson. Like I assumed somebody was angry and just like I didn't know was it universal that had had how many 15 something like that. Yeah, just a pile of fires. Yeah, and up until the 2000s. Yeah, and it was unbelievable. And not all of those were film vault fires, but they were all Universal Studio Properties fires. Right. Wow. It makes me like, and Disney has never had a fire? I don't know. Okay. I didn't find information that they did, but it's possible. Yeah, it kind of makes it unbelievable that we have any films from before we used acetate. Yeah. Because you see, like, you'll see a movie where the film just kind of melts, like, while people are watching the film. And that was really a thing. That oh, like, yeah. that could really happen. Like, the film would just melt if the person running the projector was not doing right, doing it right. Yeah, there's, um, there are very few theaters that are currently capable of safely projecting nitrate films, uh, so there are some that screen those old films to the public as is without them being captured in some other way, but it's very rare simply because even now it's very hard to handle nitrate film. Yeah. I wonder what goes into it. Like, do you have to wear, I'm assuming special gloves. Almost certainly. Yeah. And you obviously there's a different kind of projector than the ones that are used today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if the room has to be a certain temperature and everything. I think cold storage is pretty important. I think yeah. shielding a projection room 
from the rest of the theater is considered pretty important. So, uh, sorry, projectionist, but you get to hang out in the metal box while everybody else gets out of the theater, I guess. <laughs> so. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if projectionists are still a thing. Like, cause that oh, was a thing no in the nineties when I was, when I was, um, working in the theater, like that was the, that guy and the manager would be the ones cutting the film, um, and putting it on the projectors. But I wonder if it's just something you just press play now. I don't know. It's kind of like you could manage a whole theater on an iPod. I feel like. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Do they even make iPods anymore? Uh, Am I, I that old? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> hey, kids, comment yeah. and tell us if they still make iPods. <laughs> Children, fellow fellow youths, <laughs> fellow youths these days. <laughs> Do you have a uh, reuse project? No, I didn't think of one. I forgot. <laughs> I have one. Uh, okay, cool. Especially because spring is around the corner. Uh, for weed control in your garden, you can actually use a hefty layer of newspaper laid yeah. down on your garden. Uh, most newsprint nowadays, maybe even all of it, is made with soy inks. And so they're not especially toxic or problematic for your soil. And uh, there are several YouTube demonstrations of how to best do this, but a lot of it is just you lay down a patch of newspaper, don't do it on a windy day, and then water it, and it will sort of meld together. And we've done that. Well, Nick did it. I didn't do any of it. Uh, in our garden, and it helped enormously with huh. weed suppression. Uh and then it also helps keep the soil moist uh, because, you know, if you've got a full sun garden, it can really deplete the moisture in the soil. But if you've got a full sun garden with newspaper over it, uh, the mo if, the, if you have a fairly thick layer of newspaper, uh, the moisture takes a lot more time to be evaporated out. Mm -hmm. So, and if you're thinking, how the heck am I going to get that many newspapers? Uh, we got our newspapers by calling around to local newspapers, newsprints, et cetera, and seeing if they just had extras in their offices or their, uh, their warehouses. And one of them, a local one called Indy or the Indy, I think it's the, yes. has or had a ton and we're thrilled that they didn't have to get rid of them. Someone just, you know, Nick just came and picked them up. Oh, that's awesome. So. Yeah. Newspaper. I know that um, when I worked at Meals on Wheels, one of the volunteers always wanted the leftover newspapers because um, she would put them on her garden and we'd have newspapers left because the newspapers were donated by the Herald mm -hmm. um, and then given out to the people that were getting meals that day. But there were always quite a few left over and she always took them for her garden. Cool. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Where Does It Go? And we covered old school buses and lost films. Awesome. Let's go buy a school bus, Sarah. Yes, I want to buy a school bus. All right. <laughs>